This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey, Elk Shape Podcast listeners, this is me, Dan the Fitness Man. We got another dope episode coming up today, bringing on Travis Schneider of Stuck in the Rut. If you haven't heard of him, man, these guys are underrated. They got a tremendous YouTube channel. Check it out, but we're going to dive deep into their story, learn a little bit about his construction background as a general contractor. He's also a logger. He also builds his own house. He also shoots amazing videos, and he also knows how to shoot a gun very far, very accurately. He's a heck of a bow hunter. He's hunted in Alaska, all over the states. He's taken down lots of different big games and predators. And he's a really humble guy, very blue collar. He's a perfect candidate for this podcast. If this is your first time listening to Elk Shape Podcast, guess what? It is all about blue collar, public land, do-it-yourself hunting. And we're all about crushing that elk hunting learning curve. We are sponsored by discipline, delayed gratification, hard work, and staying accountable to yourself. We're also brought to you by the University of Elk Hunting. Here's Corey Jacobson. Hey, Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. 
invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. All right. Thanks for that message, Corey. You guys take advantage. That's an awesome offer exclusively just for the Elk Shape listeners. Use that code. Do your due diligence in the offseason. Make yourself a better version of yourself through nutrition, training, scouting, and hell, do that University of Elk Hunting as well. We got Elk Shape Camp coming up, the first one. We're going to announce the dates of the second one in 2019. And If you live anywhere where you would like an elk shape camp to come to your hood, I need a place to train you. I need a place to shoot. We'll bring in somebody from Phelps Game Calls to do all the calling techniques. I'll probably bring Stealthy Hunter to go over backpacking systems and do some technical archery, shoot under duress, work on third axis and shooting steep angles. I'll teach you everything I know about nutrition, fitness, training, and how to make yourself a major threat to the elk population when you have a bow in hand so if you're interested email me elkshape at gmail.com i appreciate all you guys taking time out of your day to listen to this if you have any questions shoot me an email or message me i am on instagram at elkshape without further ado here is travis schneider stuck in the rut elk shape podcast with me dan the fitness man i'm pretty stoked about today i feel like i've been lining up some pretty good guests here's a guy um, that i've been trying to get on for a while and um, it's funny, I sent you a message on Instagram, which you probably didn't get because it's never been opened. But so I had to <laughs> I had to pull some strings. I had to go through a buddy to of uh, a buddy, get your number. And uh, you don't live that far away. And I've actually met your uh, brother elk hunting. You know how you meet random people. But today we're bringing on some really badass stuck in the rut boys. Travis Schneider out of Idaho. What's going on, buddy? Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm hard to get a hold of, that's for sure. And I hardly check my social media because we're so busy that's doing everything else, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> well, you guys, obviously, we have a lot to cover, but I just for those that don't know, you I think arguably one of the most underrated YouTube channels. If, if you know, you know what I'm saying. And if you don't, you need to get over there and check out their YouTube channel. These guys are amazing. So when did you guys start your YouTube channel, Trav? Oh, I think it was around 2011 is when we when we started it out. Okay, and since then, it looks like it's. Uh, I haven't checked it lately, but what were you at subscribers wise and videos and views, all that stuff? Oh my gosh, to be honest with you, I haven't even checked in like six months. But <laughs> we've been so crazy busy. But the last I checked, we were around forty thousand some subscribers, and probably somewhere around the neighborhood of fourteen million total views. Exactly. We've got some videos that have a lot, a lot yep. of views. So. Are you primarily uh, just behind the trigger or behind the camera, or who is doing Stuck in the Rut? Like, what is that all about? Uh, It's mainly my brother Tom and I that do it. We just take turns back and forth, and without without that team effort of both of us being dedicated, it it wouldn't happen Um, because we're we're both busy. Like I keep saying, with our lives of being a dad and owning a couple businesses and running everything, so it takes takes a lot of time. But we just take turns. You know, one guy's the shooter and one guy's dedicated to the camera and uh the next special tag that we draw or the next turn that we just swap and that's that's the way that it's worked and that we've caught so many of our hunts on videos because of the determination of the cameraman that's awesome dude who has to edit these shows we both do um to begin with uh, up until about two years ago i probably did all of the editing and then uh as I started having more kids, it got a little overwhelming. So I, I taught Tom how to do it. And now he does 
most of all the rough cutting and then I kind of do the final. He puts it together and does a lot of the time consuming stuff and then I just do a final on it and post them. That's what we've been doing. That's cool. Do you guys have a goal with that channel? Are you trying to, um, have you monetized it? What, what's your end game? Yeah. When we first started, um, I'm trying to think of what year when we really started with the YouTube thing. I mean, at first, you know, we had a lot of footage and we didn't know what to do with it. And we, we thought about going the TV route and we've had a lot of requests too, but the more that I looked into it, you know, you got to buy your slot. If for those of you that don't know how that works, you got to basically pay in. Um, I would just throw a number out there, say a hundred thousand for, you know, a slot on TV. And then you have to get that many advertisers in return to just break even. So in order to make money at that, it's uh, it's risky and it was a lot of time, you know, time involving stuff that I didn't have time or or money to do at the time. So we just decided to throw them on YouTube and we we're going to continue with our normal lives. And we hunt and we video because we love it and we love to share it. And if something falls into place later on, then when so be it. But the honest truth is we just haven't had a whole lot of time to do anything with it. That's um, cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, you guys do a bang up job. I mean, and you've hunted some pretty cool destinations. We're going to get into that. But my podcast, you probably don't have time to listen to podcasts. I'll just give you a quick over, like, snap view. It's like I'm looking for Diamond in the Roughs to interview normal people that aren't insta famous. I'm looking for those tried and true blue collar guys who are family men, who are hardworking, and they're passionate about hunting, but they also have some balance in their life where they can. You know, still be an amazing husband first and foremost, and then a, you know, a dad take care of the family. But uh, I'm pretty damn sure that's you. That's why I was like, I got to get this guy on. So tell us <laughs> a little bit about you know your work situation, your business, your entrepreneurship, what your day to day looks like. We'll get into your hunting background. That's okay. easy stuff. But I like this kind of stuff first. So yeah, that's fine. Tell us about you. Well, I started out working pretty young. My dad always taught us to work hard. And I would say my mom taught us how to play hard. She always um, would take us, take us out to do fun stuff outdoors. My dad's kind of a workaholic. So we kind of got the best of both worlds, I would say. Um, but I started logging with my dad when I was 12 years old, you know, running chainsaw and the landing during the summer months and after school. And so we worked a lot. And, uh, the way he raised us, I feel like was good. And I want to raise our kids that way where, uh, he paid us a decent wage for the hours we worked. Um, and then we had to buy our own stuff. So he never just bought something for us and said, here you go. Here's something for free. So we learned the value of a dollar at an early age. And then, um, I decided I didn't want to be a logger forever at the time. So I seeked out, found a job in Alaska did that for one summer. It was a great job, great growing up experience. And then I decided that I wanted to learn how to build houses. Um, so I bought a lot down here in Idaho, a one acre lot, and I had to pull some strings, took a loan out and built a spec home. And I'd never built a house before. Uh, my motto with things was I didn't spend any time in college or anything like that. I just, I had the drive to do it. And so I decided, um, I learned pretty quickly as I started that, that, uh, you just hire somebody with the skill set, and I would learn from them. And so that's kind of how I learned some self-taught. And then, uh, for example, with concrete work, I, I told the guy I'd come to a, I'd come help him with a pour. So I went and worked for him for a week, did all the concrete stages on a house for free. And then, uh, you know, he kind of taught me how to do it. And then I went and did my foundation. So kind of step-by-step like that, I started. Awesome. 
And so that was 11 years ago or something like that. I was 19 at the time. And that went really well. I landed a couple big custom homes and and that kind of got me started, I would say. Um, but in the meantime, we all we always hunted hard and we would try and work hard, um, you know, for nine months out of the year. And, and honestly, back then when we didn't have a family, we would take three months off. We would, uh, we would try and line projects out to where we didn't have to be there. The subs would be there something like that. And we'd just go hunting. It worked out really good. It's obviously getting harder to take that much time off now that I've got three little kids and a wife. Um, my, my kids need me a lot. So, and I like to be there for them. But that's that's how we got started with the construction end of things. And then in the last couple of years, I you know, you do something for ten years, I just I almost got bored with it, like felt like I learned the avenues of building and I ended up buying a feller buncher, you know, a, a tree snipper for yeah. logging. Yeah. And and I went in I've been doing that for about three years, kind of back and forth. Um, building and doing that. But it's a nice break. I work in the woods by myself and then if I want to build and uh, a good project comes up, I can go do it. So it's been working out good. I'm, I'm really happy with it, but what that did is just made me more, more busy. You know, now I log, I build and run a, you know, stuck in the rut. So good Lord. <laughs> it's busy. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I love your work ethic. I think that's awesome. I tell you 11 years in the construction business, that means you probably weathered early on that 2008. Did that hit you pretty hard? It did and it didn't. I, I was extremely fortunate and I landed a big house right at the downturn in that. Okay. Um, but on the same token, thinking back, I did have a spec home available for sale at that time that didn't sell and I had to sit on it for two years. So I had to make payments on that for two years. That did suck. Ouch. Um, but during that time I landed this big custom home for an amazing client, best client I've ever had. And so that kept me busy for a little over a year, just nonstop. And that, that got me through that downturn and, you know, I had a waiting list after I was done with that. So I really didn't have any lull time where I just wasn't working. Um, my, my dad ended up having to go to North Dakota at that time. Um, cause we kind of worked together as a family, but, um, at that time it's just, you know, people were struggling. A lot of people went over to the oil fields and my brother and brother-in-law went to the oil fields and, um, but I was able to keep the crew crew busy here. So that worked good. Now on your, you're a general contractor. When you, when you do builds now, it's always curious to me, how the heck do you guys make money off? I mean, do you just line up really good subs that you've built solid you know, relationships with and they have great reputation? Are you swinging a hammer still on some things? Like how have you got, how have you evolved as an owner, a general contractor and where are you at today on your process? Well, I would say starting out, when you start out of business, you always, you pretty much take anything. And I wouldn't say I turned down a single job for the first, you know, few years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've almost, you know, I think I learned from my dad kind of with when he, when he would take on logging jobs, I learned that as a, as a younger age, some jobs you're better off not taking. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, it's, you're either going to lose money or you just take it to keep your crew busy. And so I kind of, I just got more picky I guess you would say on what I took and if a job wasn't going to make money or I didn't have a good feeling about the client to where, you know, maybe they were having marital relationships or, or whatever, what have you, you know, if I could just tell, I didn't think it was going to go well, I just wouldn't take them. I just took jobs that we clicked as between client and, um, the general and, 
And another interesting thing that I've never done out of all those years of building, I've never bid against other people. Um, if somebody wanted to build a house is because they saw the work I did. They saw my work ethic. They'd come to me and say, I want you to build this house. And we would work out an agreement from there and we would do it. I was never a fan of, um, somebody that a client that would call me and say, Hey, I got a bid from this guy, this guy, this guy. And I go, well, all those guys help teach me how to build. So I'm not going to bid against them. You know, good luck. That's cool. Send them on their merry way. Wow. That speaks a lot about your character. And I dig that man. Building a house with, uh, let's say a partner, uh, for lack of a better term and working with the GC, it's very, it can be pretty stressful. And so how have you mitigated that as you know, the point man working with say a couple and, you know, they disagree on how it should go or whatever. And ultimately, you know, it's a people business at the end of the day. That's what you're doing. So have you, did you kind of learn through the school of hard knocks or have you just been able to kind of have some, some pretty smooth waters? Um, for the most part, I had smooth waters. I had one client that we had pretty much exactly what we're talking about there. We had some disagreements and a good construction friend of mine told me, he said, building a house with a couple is, is similar to a marriage. At first you start out everybody, they got money, they're all excited. And then throughout the middle, you have a few disagreements. And then at the end, you're kind of at each other's throats because their money's run out. And, you know, for usually that just puts a lot of stress. And I I don't know if I, you hardly do a house where people don't run out of money. Everybody wants more than um, what they think they can afford, you know? Yep. And this is kind of the truth of it. And, um, but anyway, for the most part, I had just fantastic clients. And I had this one project that we had some rough stuff in the middle go on and it just taught me a lot. Just taught me more, uh, where it basically just started bringing in his own subs. He said, oh, I've got a buddy that can do this. I got a buddy to do that. And I was just nice and said, yeah, go ahead. You know, you don't do that. Oh, man. But then it, it, it just kind of threw a wrench in things and their subs didn't work well with mine. The project started not going smoothly. Him and I had sat down and just had a one-on-one, and, and we figured things out, and I got my subs back in there. We got things cleaned up, and end goal, he was a happy client, and we're, we're still friends to this day. But, um, you know, it is a big, like you said, a people game, and that's one of the reasons I bought a feller puncher and I went to the woods. It's just like I work in the woods by myself. I get paid by Jippo, so the harder I work, um, I get paid by the ton, how much wood I lay on the ground. And I'm there by myself. I have one forester to answer to. And so I like that aspect of it for sure. Um, but just the honest truth, you're not going to get ahead in life. Um, you know, save a nest egg. I would say, um, logging, like I've just, I've, I've grown up in a logging town unless you're doing real estate mixed in with it or something like that. You're making a good hourly wage or a good living, but you're not going to get ahead. So I kind of try and just mix both together. That's doing awesome. the best I can. That's cool. I think this stuff's, uh, I love this stuff. Obviously, I'm interested in your story. I think falling trees and all that by yourself, it's a little sketchy, but you've done it your whole life. I got some really good friends that are loggers out of St. Mary's, and um, they're the hardest working guys. And uh, I'm in a people business. I own a gym. I have 200 clients. I can't make them all happy. There are yeah, days exactly. where I want to go join Travis Schneider in the woods and I just want to put <laughs> headphones in and I just want to cut trees down and just earn money. I don't want to deal with people, but you can't get around that in life. You know, it's just kind of one of the you really can't. inevitable mm-hmm. things. So, and you learn, you know, you're just never going to make everybody happy and that's okay. 
So you just That's right. try to do your best. I was interested in hearing about all the construction stuff that you've done, but I guess we'll get into hunting. My last question on the contractor side is, dude, in 11 years, you've learned how to do everything yourself. At the end of the day, what's your, what's your biggest strength when it comes to construction? And I mean actual like part of the construction. Are you just a hell of a framer? Are you a visionary? Are you a good finished carpenter? You can do custom built-ins. Like, are you good at custom stuff? What's your What's your trademark, man? What's your your niche? I almost have to think about that one for a second. But if I just had to say something that came to my mind, I would say I'm fairly visionary. Um, you know, I've got a I I guess you could call it a gift to where I can I can visualize how it's going to look, and it turns out like that. And so I can tell the client or explain to them how I think it's going to turn out, and not everybody's like that. You know, a lot of times they can't visualize it. And then when the, when the product is finished, they go, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly what you said. I just couldn't visualize it. Um, but I don't know if I really have a strong side. We, when you're a general, you just kind of learn to do everything. I can tell you what I don't like to do. I don't like to do concrete very well. I don't like to do drywall, but about everything else. Um, I love doing finished work. We've done a couple just oddball crazy things uh like one little story that comes to my mind on one of the bigger custom homes we had like a 10 by 10 opening two stories tall and this guy said i i want something that's nobody's ever done before i want a, a custom staircase to get me up these two levels and so i it would i'd take me a lot of time to explain but we basically did a square spiral staircase that's all free floating it looks like it was impossible to build and took us like a month and a half to build the staircase three guys. Um, and it was an expensive staircase, but this thing, it's quite a masterpiece. It it's incredible. And and we built him a, a mock-up on a, uh, a pallet to begin with. Yeah. And he goes, I want to take this to, to my engineer and see what he says. And I said, to be honest with you, an engineer is never going to pass it. Cause I said, we don't even know how we're going to build this thing yet until we get, get into it. I just, I know once we start on it, if it's not going to work, we'll abort, but yep, I think we can do it. And he just gave us the reins and let us go. And it, it turned out phenomenal. It's really cool. Oh, you're going to have to text me a picture of that. Okay. Well, let's move on to hunting. I think like we got a background on that. Um, what's your yep. ages of your kids? How long you been married? I've been married for, I think five years now and I've got three kids. So <laughs> since then we got married, we got pregnant a month after we were married and we've just been having babies ever since then. Every every two years in December, we had a baby since then. <laughs> okay, wow. And so, so we just had our our last and most recent one the day after Christmas here. We had boy, girl, boy. This last one was a boy, and uh, this is the last kid where my wife's physically able to have. So we're we're almost excited to be just done having kids and get back to um, just enjoying them. You know, because oh, yeah. when you got a bunch of little kids running around, you're definitely in the thick of it. Oh yeah, they grow up fast. Uh, how many are in diapers? Uh, pretty much all of them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> our oldest one is pretty well potty trained, but he still wears diapers at night. Oh yeah, so yeah. You buy a lot of diapers. Oh God bless your wife and uh, man. I tell you, <laughs> I'm a. You said you you wanted to record this morning, and I was like, oh, that sounds good. And I didn't check the calendar. My wife's working at twelve at the hospital, and. Uh, Oh yeah. So I just uh, got the kids up, made them breakfast. I'm like, here's iPads, which I hate doing. Screen yeah. time. I'm like, here's iPads. <laughs> I'm going downstairs. I'm recording, 
and um, <laughs> I had to bribe him. But we'll see if this. So if I get interrupted, it's because I'm I'm a two against one right now. But yeah, I love it, man. It's super. You're a good hard. man. It's it's really uh, affected my uh, ability to do the stuff I used to do. My wife and I used to go backpacking uh, all the time, and we we'd go on really cool vacations. Now it's it's just a little bit more simple and it's a lot less about us it's more about yeah me and it's tough but it's a good reward i still get out and hunt um and my wife still puts up with it but i i mean i hunt a lot i mean that's what i live for like you and we'll Absolutely. get in, we'll get into how those dynamics work with your wife but uh let's kind of get a background on your hunting here's what i know i'll just kind of give you what i've seen from afar okay i met your brother i want to say in avery idaho yep um and I don't remember when, what, where, why, but I just know I met him. Uh, he's He was uh, getting after it. And I don't know if you were there or not. I don't think you were. but you, I probably was, just on a different ridge or something at the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then um trying to think. Uh, a mutual uh, mutual Bonners Ferry guy, Kenton Claremont, who we started Train to Hunt in 2010, told yep. me about you guys. And so I've always knew of you guys through him. And then I just kept track of like, you're stuck in the rut stuff, seeing some of your videos here and there throughout the years. And from what I can tell is you guys are diehard hunters, like probably be arguably some of the most hardcore do-it-yourself hunters out there. And you guys have hunted all over, including Alaska. And when it comes to long range rifles, I wouldn't want to be a target in front of you guys. So let's go. That's what I know. Let's go into kind of your hunting pedigree, what you guys are up to and what you've done and, and, uh, We'll hopefully catch some good stories, too. Okay. Where do you want to start with that, with all those things? Well, your dad probably took you out when you were young. When did you kind of start hunting on your own and um, doing that thing? I would say my first elk is what really got me hooked. Although I always, as a young kid, just like most kids with dads that hunt, always look forward to my dad would come home from elk camp, you know, and you want to hear all the stories. And so I was really into it naturally. But my the first animal that really got me hooked, um, you know, I'd shot a couple deer out of the window like with my grandpa or something like that when I was first able to hunt <laughs> one of those things yep. but then uh, when I was 13 years old I was kind of begging my dad to take me elk hunting and he was a great dad but he he just worked like crazy he logged seven days a week he wouldn't even take off Christmas you know so he was a workaholic basically and he just it's like oh next year you know you'll be a little older you gotta get a couple more deer under your belt and he had done a logging job and um, we were planting trees on this like a 40 acre strip that he did. And it was the last day of elk season. And I, of course, threw a seven MM in the pickup when my mom drove me up, drove me up there. So I was 13. I just told my mom, I said, I'm going to walk up that mountain. There was a, it was right at the base of a mountain and it just went up really steep. And I'm thankful that my mom had trust in me back then, but she just let me go. And I, I took off up that mountain by myself and I got to the top of this bump about halfway up and I'm talking a couple thousand feet up from where I started it. I was, I was way up there for a 13 year old. Um, I started finding these whitetail sheds and I was just having the time of my life. There was these whitetail sheds that nobody had ever found before old ones, fresh ones. And I heard a little stick pop kind of over the, the cliff. I was kind of on a bench. If you can imagine over the cliff, I heard a little stick pop and I walked over there and looked down and right in the um, region patch there, there was a, a six point bull elk that appeared to be kind of sleeping, standing up. And he looked up at me and he just, you know, he saw his eyes got three times bigger than they were. 
and he just bolted, but it was so steep kind of running through rocks. He couldn't gain much ground. So I unloaded my gun on him, but he was only like 25 yards and he just dropped right there and uh, rolled down the hill and got hung up with his horns. And so that's just what kicked it off. I mean, I walked down there as a 13 year old young boy standing over a nice six point bull elk. And I just felt like I was on top of the world right there. And I was, I was instantly hooked from there. Yeah, that's awesome. And speaking of shed hunting, you guys, I know that you guys were some crazy shed hunters. Not sure if you still do that, but I mean like on another level, especially when it came to moose paddles, did you guys um, make a small fortune or did you guys just throw them in the barn and pile them up? Have you ever sold any of your sheds? Like I'm talking some legitimate shed hunting skills over in the the Schneider family. Uh, We've kept most of them and have them on display here and there, but we... I've, we sold a lot of the older ones, but most of the brown ones, I, I knew for some reason I just had a feeling that it wasn't going to be here forever. And so we kept them. We yeah. pretty much got them memorized and all that weird stuff. But yeah, we've got a, we've got a lot of, a lot of moose antlers, especially, but we found nice, nice everything. That was back when we had a lot of game before the wolves, which is probably a subject for later, but you know, it oh, yeah. just, we, we haven't been into it that much because we hardly used to ever have a dry run. We'd go out and we'd find sheds every time we went out. And we'd go out every spare second we had be- before school, after school, at lunch. It didn't matter. We were out in the woods. Yep. Um, now we can go. I can go out five times and not find a shed. That's how bad it's gotten. So I don't have the drive that I used to for finding sheds. I, I hope to find places that I can take my kids when they get a little older. Yeah, me too. But I totally that's agree. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Yes. So you're 13. You smack your first, you know, six-point bull. You probably um, changed your dad's mind a little bit about your ability, and uh, things probably grew from there. So, did you? When did you first pick up a bow and start doing archery elk? So I'll just kind of keep going from there at the beginning. So then I, I think the next two years I, I shot six point bulls with a with a rifle, um, and it wasn't because I was waiting for a six point. I. I was lucky and the first bull elk, the first legal elk that presented itself happened to be six points. And so I shot those, those three bulls in a row. And then, um, I had found this giant whitetail kill. It was, uh, you know, when I was out shed hunting, it was, uh, it appeared to be a cougar kill or something like that up in some cliffs. And it had, it scored two Oh three. Uh, it was like a, I think a, a nine by 11 or something like that. It was a giant white tail. Good Lord. And it was old. So I did sell that one. I have regrets of that to this day. Cause you never find a bigger one than that. But, um, it, because it was old, I, I sold it and I think I sold it for $1,300 on eBay, which was a lot of money for however old I was 15 or something like that. And I bought my first uh, bow with that money. So I bought a, a brand new bow tech, um, got it all set up. And then the, the next year, um, we had a particular drainage that we were hunting and we bugled a lot of bulls in, but it was so brushy and aldery. We could never get a clear shot. I mean, we bugled bulls 10 yards before and didn't have a good shot. So I put a tree stand up over where these skid, tra- these old skid trails came into kind of a, a wallow right there. And long story short, short, I killed, um, three more six point bulls with a bow out of that tree stand those next three years. So I started to get a pretty good streak of six points going on. And then I started to get to the point where, well, I can't shoot anything smaller. I mean, 
you know, I'm almost 20 years old and kind of accidentally killed six points up until now. So then I just kind of waited for six points at that point. And I've um, been able to harvest one on, on public land consecutively every year up until this point, 30, 31 years old. Wow. Um, so I, I would say elk is my, that's my passion, but I love hunting everything. Yeah. And, and I'm with you. Like I love, I've hunted a lot of places, but I just come back to elk hunting. It's what, it's what makes me tick. So that's a pretty incredible streak. I'm not going to lie, especially public land, do it yourself, which seems to be a hundred percent your guys' style. So when did you get, start dabbling into Alaska and when did you start dabbling into becoming what I would say a f- sniper with a, with a long range rifle? Uh, we'll start with Alaska. So when I, when I moved up there to work, um, when I was 19 or 18 or 19 or something like that, right after high school, I just absolutely fell in love with Alaska. I mean, the first week I was up there, I, we drove all the way up to Prudhoe Bay. Uh, we went up two weeks early before work and we kind of explored Alaska. We drove most all the roads that you can drive on in two weeks, you know, just exploring. And um, we drove over what's called Adigan Pass when it drops over into Prudhoe Bay up there. And there was just caribou and wolves up there. It was really neat. And I just said, right then I said, if I ever have a son, I'm going to name him Adigan. And that came to pass with my first born there. So I named him Adigan. So that was kind of cool. But yeah. Um, and then we, when we were horn hunting up there, I got charged by a sow and three grizzlies. And I ended up having to shoot uh, two of those. We turned, turned those in the fishing game. And that was all good. But I mean, it was just, those were all two weeks of just, it was just, incredible the country the lack of people the sheds that were out there i just fell in love with it and from then on we've if not every year every other year we've made trips up there uh to do hunting and then my my sister um married my brother-in-law here adam and he said when I, when i met adam his goal was to become a bush pilot up there he was already a bush pilot but to get a a job and moved to Alaska. And so I told my sister, I go, that guy's a keeper for sure. You better marry that one. Yeah. <laughs> and that also came true. And, and they live up there and now in our residence. So we have even more of an excuse to get up there. But. Yeah. I got to give Adam a shout out. He's responsible for me getting your number. And, uh, I got to hunt with him a little bit in, uh, Arizona and he's a great dude. So hopefully I can maybe someday hunt with him up in Alaska. He's a, he's a good egg and I haven't met your sister, but um, I know how cool Adam is. So that's awesome. Then yeah. you, so about every other year you're heading back. What, so have you hunted just about everything in Alaska? What have you, um, been uh, successful with up there? We started with caribou the first time we went up there and well, we shot those, ac- I shot those accidental grizzlies. Yeah. So that was right off the bat. Those didn't really count. And then, um, we started with caribou on our caribou hunt we were successful. And then we went on a fly out moose hunt and got dropped off on a lake, uh, me and a, a good friend of mine. And that, that one also really just struck home with me and really hooked us good because we're just out in the middle of nowhere. And I shot a really nice, uh, bull moose the second day of season. And then my buddy shot a nice one the, the sixth day in and we had just beautiful weather. It was a great experience. And, but I, I guess I will have to tell the, the last part of that story. Money was tight at the time. That was our first trip up there and so when i had shot my moose we we paid to get it flown out and then when my buddy shot his moose we thought well let's just save that twenty five hundred dollars and let's float this moose all the way to town 
we had a raft, you know, and we were, we were camped <laughs> at this lake. And we had done some research. We knew it was sketchy, but we were up for an adventure. And we ended up floating a full, you know, a deboned moose or uh, cut up moose in a raft. Ended up being 88 miles till we got to town. Took us oh. five days. <laughs> but it was an adventure of a lifetime. We had some close calls. We popped our raft, flipped our raft, fell out of the raft, lost the moose horns out of the raft. I mean, you name it, it happened on that trip. Ran out of food. Um, we spent five days. Those last five days we spent eating moose meat and the fish that we could catch. And I think a duck or something like that, we shot with a pistol. And so it was just really cool. You know, it's really hard to experience stuff like that in the lower 48. I would say when you're that remote, you're in the middle of nowhere. And that was before we had the or anything like that. I mean, it was dangerous. It was stupid looking back on it, but it was an experience of a lifetime. It was cool. Oh, I wish you had that documented. I do too. That's about the time we started to film. I think that's one of the first, I've got a couple clips of those moose. That was, that was even before we had the 1080 HD cameras. I mean, it sounds like I'm really old, but you know, that was like in 2010 or something like that. Yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. Wow. That blows my mind, but Hey, you saved 2,500 bucks and you got a hell of a story and nobody died. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Moose wise. How many times have you gone back up for moose? I one, swear I've seen two, one where your dad – I seem like three. everybody got one on one hunt on YouTube where – Yeah. I think, I think I've done three, just three moose. Okay. Um, a couple times I went up there, I went to hunt just with my sister or with my brother-in-law or something like that. But so they weren't always for me. But I think me personally, I've went, been on three moose hunts. And we were fortunate to be successful um, – on all of them so far. I came really close on the last one. I thought that was going to break our streak. I, I think on the very last day I ended up shooting one, but I, I would say the one, the pinnacle to it or the one that topped them all is the one when I went up there, you know, it's kind of like one of those bucket list things. I just wanted to hunt Alaska with my dad Yep. and he's 59 or 60 years old and never been up there moose hunting. And I'm just kind of the one that, you know, let's do it now before we get too old. And, and before we die, because who knows when you're going to go. <laughs> and right. so I just told him, Dad, we're going. I said, you know, I've got you signed up. And so we talked to him going, and, and we had just a ball. And we all, we all three killed moose and, and three bulls over 60 inches, and we got them out in eight days. It was, it was insane. I mean, to pack eight moose, I don't even know how many pounds that is or how many packs, but all we did was pack moose. I mean, Tom shot one the second day of season and while we were packing his out i we saw mine and i shot mine and while we were packing mine out we saw another one and dad shot that one and so all we did was was have quarters on our back several trips a day for eight days straight um wow and our these backs are all wrecked these right aren't now, small quarters these are alaskan moose quarters this is the pinnacle this is that's incredible and yeah we weighed a couple legitimately they're like a hundred and 86 pounds on an Alaskan rear quarter. I mean, they're no, they're nothing to joke about, but I, we did start to, uh, you have to leave the bone in, in that area, which kind of sucks. I started to look for areas to hunt where you, you don't, where you can de debone them. Um, but a lot of areas in Alaska, you have to leave the bone in the quarters. And so they're just, they're hellacious packs, but oh. we started to cut like a 20 pound ham out of the rear quarter just to make it manageable because 
when you're doing trips out of there that heavy, you know, your knees start to buckle and your back starts to hurt and it's just, it's, you can hurt yourself out there if you're not careful. So how did your pilot, uh, negotiate with three bull Alaska bull moose on the ground and all your gear? Like you guys have to do shuttles or how'd that work? Yeah. Yeah. It was an expensive trip. Every time you kill a moose, it costs you another trip. Um, but basically he would, they can get a full moose in those bigger airplanes. Okay. And so, you know, we'd, we would always rent a satellite radio when we'd go up there. And so we'd get a moose down, we'd call in a satellite radio once we had it to camp. And when the weather would clear, they'd come pick it up. And so we'd get rid of that meat. And so we didn't have to worry about bears or the meat spoiling or anything like that. They put it in a cooler. And then when we get another one, we'd do the same thing. And then the last, usually the last trip out, it's a trip out for us and then a trip out for the gear. That's awesome. So I know you've done one hunt that's on my bucket list. I mean, moose is up there, but I hate the dates because I'm such a diehard elk hunter. But Alaska coastal brown bear, you've done it. I want to do it with a bow. I'm advertising my – that's my one, like, I'd be willing to spend a lot of money on that hunt. But uh, you've done it. Tell me about it, man. I just feel extremely blessed that I was able to do it with my brother-in-law. Being a resident, it made it possible for me because, like you said, I mean – it, it costs a, a guy a small fortune to go up there and, and get a guide um, to go hunt those things. You know, I don't even know what it's at, but I know in the area we were looking, it's it's over $20,000 uh, to do a hunt similar to what we did. And for those of you that don't know, if you have like first kindred blood that lives up there, which a brother-in-law uh, counts, I can hunt with him and he can act as my guide. And so that's how I was able to do it. You know, I went up there and dumped av gas and Adam's plane and we went hunting and so that i just feel almost spoiled that i was able to experience that but it, it was awesome i mean it was a trip of a lifetime and we both killed absolute brutes for bears where did you go ish if you can say i'm not sure if alaska's top oh just no just alaska peninsula or just peninsula bears yep. um you know i guess from what i heard when i was there the biologist was talking there's the same dna that the bears have on Kodiak, which, you know, as, as most of you know, are our world known for basically the biggest bears in the world. They're right there with polar bears as far as weight goes, but the brown bears have bigger heads and skulls and Kodiak has produced the biggest, um, skulls on bears. But, you know, we just, we both killed giant bears. His was a, Adam killed a, a book bear. I think it takes 28 inches to make oh. book and it, it was like 28 and three quarters, something like that. Good Lord. Um, mine didn't have in his, I think squared out at nine foot six or eight, somewhere in there. Mine had a little smaller head, but was really leggy and long. As far as hide goes, thing looked like a school bus out there. And he, he squared out at 10, I think it was 10, six or 10, eight. I forget the exact number, but just giant. I mean, you know, kind of laid out on a tarp. He's an inch under 10 foot nose to tail and he was like 11 foot three claw to claw so giant giant bears they look prehistoric when you walk up to them oh my goodness i guess i'm super jealous i think like the biggest black bear i've ever killed is like a 19 inch skull so it's just hard to fathom tacking on another 10 inches that is oh my such gosh. a big head oh my goodness when we walked up to adams you know i told him i was like you've done all this research you lived up here I was like, your first shooter, I'm okay with that coming out of here with nothing. That's okay with me. You know, let's just get you one first. And 
so we saw that we spotted Adams. Um, I spotted it in the spot and scope a long ways away. It was sliding down this kind of this little snow hillside. And long story short, it took us like six or seven hours to get to where we saw him. And when we first saw the track, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, that thing, it was prehistoric looking. You can fit, you know, a size 13 boot right in the back foot of this thing and not touch its claws. It was just insanely big. And, you know, you could tell just by the, the stance of it, like how wide his tracks were from each other, how big of a barrel chest he had. And, and when we finally, we, we basically tracked him down in the snow until he got out of snow and tracked him in the mudaways. And then we found him, we spotted him sleeping um, a couple miles away and ended up being able to go up there and kill him. But it was just like, my goodness, when we walked up to that thing, our, we were fairly speechless. The thing is just absolutely giant. I just remember seeing your picture, and I mean, you guys take good photos, but there's no, there's no disguise in the size of the bear you killed too. I mean, it's I, I'm trying to remember. You were by a creek or something, and it was it's just a gorgeous bear. He, he was all uh, scarred up, and man, it was crazy. How long does it take to break down a brown bear? Um, there's a lot of square inches there. I mean, I wouldn't say it was it's too terrible if you if you're familiar with you know gotten an elk or or anything like that when you're taking the skin off, I guess. But it, it's not terrible. I'd say what took a long time was we fleshed it ourselves because, you know, we get so spoiled living where we live where there's a taxidermist down the street. Well, when you're up there and you know, we were in King Salmon, Alaska, where we were based out of, um, you just can't go and have all those amenities. So it's like, we got to take care of the skin. So we had to flush that bear. Well, that's a lot of, I mean, it took us, it took three or four guys almost a full day given we didn't know what we were doing, right. but we flushed that thing ourselves. And, uh, and then I ended up bringing it home on the airlines because you, they'll only take a 90, like a hundred pound bag. By the time when I packed that, that hide out, I think it was 180 something pounds. Oh my um, gosh. Just the hide alone. And given it was wet because it was in that creek, but when we got it home, got it dried out, fleshed it and salted it, it was like 99 pounds in a bag. So I was able to take it home on, in a, you know, big Cabela's dry bag. That's awesome. pretty cool. Oh, but yeah, it, it, you know, it shed 80 some pounds of water and fat, just fleshing that thing. Incredible, incredible animals, man. I, I'm super jealous. Well, I don't want to take all your time. I try to keep these at an hour, but I have so much to ask you. We gotta, we're going to have to fast forward into the stuff that okay. I know. I want to talk about wolves because I absolutely hate them. That's right, folks. You heard it. Not even, I'm not <laughs> even going to give you like a, oh, I respect them. I'm not even, you don't even know what I know or what Travis knows. <laughs> but um, That's right. Let's talk about your long range setup. How did you be, like, I suck when it comes to rifles. I can shoot a bow really well, but I'm still trying to figure out how to shoot long range just for wolf hunting. But how right. did you become a sniper? I'm assuming you have a custom gun and you geeked out. Tell us about that process. Um, I just, I guess I could kind of see a niche or a just a hole in the window there where there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it when it first came out. And my buddy Dallas Lane that now builds our rifles for us, um, he, he was getting one built at the same time. And him and, him and I hunted a lot together. We archery hunted a lot together. We just, we spent a lot of time together and I was seeing what that thing was capable of that he was building. And so I had, I had the same guy build me a gun. Um, and 
that's kind of where it started. But they weren't. I I don't think we spent the money to set them up right. I mean, if if you're going to do it, you go all out and you get the best stuff. But we were both kind of just testing the waters at that time, and so that's kind of where it started. And then um, we saw this really nice buck bedded down. And back then, when we had a lot of bucks, we were fairly particular, and we we ended up like, oh, I'll wait. And Dallas like, oh, I'll wait. And so we let my little brother shoot it. It ended up being a thousand eight yards. That was the first uh, like confirmed long range kill that we had. And then it was just like. It was just another one of those um, basically highs. Not only was it hunting the high, then it was, you know, making a shot at that distance. It's it's a different type of hunting. The shooting becomes just as exciting as, as taking the animal because you, ha- you just have to do everything right to shoot one at that distance. So then, then we got hooked with that, and um, Gunworks at the time, we met them at a show or something, somehow got hooked up with them. And they were, they were wanting footage. And so they, they traded us ammo and the use of a gun for footage for a year or two. And, and that, I mean, it was just one thing after another. We just, we just fell in love with it. Um, not that I like to shoot every animal that far. Most of my animals I shoot are 50 yards or less, but, um, I kind of just got to the point where I, I, I like that capability of doing that when you're, when you're selective, looking for that one particular animal in a hunting season and you have a chance at that animal at 600 yards i want to be able to take him at 600 yards you know and not um, miss that opportunity a lot of times in this country it's not like back east where people name the deer or you have an elk you know you got all these animals named i've seen a lot of animals in this country this country i hunt every year i only see them one time i never see them again never get a picture of them don't know what ever happens to them. You probably experienced that hunting yourself. Yep. So obviously so. the weapon is is amazing, but it's also more the person behind the weapon and all the nerding out and the reps at the range to make yourself that proficient. What did it take for you to get where you're at where if an animal's 600 yards away, it doesn't have a chance? Uh, the one thing that comes to mind is – Another friend of mine, Timmy Fulton, and I, that he hunts with me a lot, um, we just kind of dedicated a summer when we first got, I think they were guns from Dallas. Yeah, I think it was guns that Dallas built us. And we just, we practiced and practiced and practiced, and we burnt tons of powder. I think we both burned eight pounds of powder. So those of you that reload know that that's a lot of shooting. <laughs> and and I would say since we we did that and we practiced and we got proficient with it. I don't just go out and go long range practicing anymore. I mean, bullets are expensive and you don't have a whole lot of time, you know, but that's what it took. It took, it took a full summer of practicing. And I'm not just saying going out and shooting a couple targets. We would go to the mountains, real life stuff where you're shooting across different canyons, you know, not same scenario every time that doesn't get you proficient. You got to be able to, to learn how to read the wind and read the canyons and different things like that. So we would we would pick a different canyon every night after work, and we'd go shoot rocks at anywhere from you know 400 to 1100 yards until we started to be able to hit. Like okay, we if that was an elk, we would have killed it. You know, okay, that if that was a deer, we would have killed it. And where we started to get proficient like that, then we really started, I guess, using it hunting more. I, I guess you could say. And so nowadays, I feel like a lot of your stuff is a good mix of archery 
and long range. You guys hunt wherever you draw tags and, and you guys still work your butts off and then take just shut things down and go hunting. And you capture it all on YouTube, which is great, by the way. So you're living in north, north Idaho. You've seen it since its heyday. And now you see where it's at now. We have to kind of talk about uh, the wolves. Oh, yeah. Now, wolves were arguably a little bit there on that Canadian border, that Montana border. I remember going with Kenton when I first met him, probably like 2007 or 2008. He, uh, he wanted me to go help him scout for elk in the Purcells. And I remember going about, and I've never hunted there for, that's his area, so I've stayed out of there. But I remember going in there with him, and even in that time frame, there there was a, a wolf or two here or there, but it wasn't like, we were more worried about grizzlies at the time. Yeah. And I know the grizzlies have done way, way better over there now, too. And there's been some guys that have died because of grizzlies over there while hunting. Yeah, I've kept track. So how has it evolved? for your areas over there specifically with the wolves uh, the reintroduction and i put that in quotations the reinfestation what have you seen man it's been just absolute devastation to our livelihood here and our kids future for hunting i mean it like you said you just have a hatred for them i do too i mean i think they're cool but i don't like them in my backyard <laughs> you know it just sucks they when they reintroduced them here, like you said, infested us with them. Um, they first, the first pack that I knew of, they reintroduced in the Yak, which is not far from me, Yak, Montana. Mm-hmm. And as they started to reproduce, they're just like a dog. I mean, they like to breed. They like to have babies, especially when they're not fixed. And they just, one pack turned into two packs and on and on and on. And when the fishing game would do their studies, it was always, oh, we only have this many packs in the woods. And it's like, no. No, there isn't. There's pack everywhere I go. You know, there's wolves howling in every basin that we used to find elk in. And it just, it went too far before we were able to maintain them or kind of manage them, I guess you would say, with trapping and hunting them. It got too far. Um, There's drainages that just got completely wiped out. And I saw it firsthand because we were avid horn hunters. So when we'd go up to the wintering grounds to look for moose antlers, uh, for example, in one drainage where I used to find a lot of moose antlers, when that, there was a big wolf pack that moved in there, like I'm talking 13, 14 wolves, they they completely annihilated the moose out of there. In in a one day time on a snowmobile, I found six different dead moose in a half a mile stretch that were just that's just from what I could see on the road. There was moose parts everywhere, blood everywhere. I mean, it was a bloodbath. It was insane. And I would say the wolves started with the moose. They were easy target, big, lots of meat. They get up in the deep snow, and they were easy target for them. Um, they also picked on whatever, you know, elk or deer stood in their way. But as, as the moose numbers went down, then they started picking more on the elk and even came down in the lower lands and wiped a lot of our whitetails out. And so it's just been, it's been devastation. I mean, they're... They're knocking down our hunting seasons now because we don't have the moose numbers. It's like, well, why, why do you think that, you know? We don't have any moose hardly anymore, and they've completely taken one drainage away, um, which, to give you an example, when I was a kid in elk hunting up there, it was nothing to see um, six or seven moose just driving up to go elk hunting. I mean, they were a nuisance. They'd <laughs> run down the road everywhere, you know? Now you can't even find a track up there, and they took the season away. It's just That's just one example of the devastation they cause. I, I hate them too. I'll, I'll take any opportunity I can to 
to get out there and hunt one, but they're hard to hunt. Well, they are, and it, they're also hard to really know their numbers in the country that you're talking about. It's all steep, deep, timbered country. A lot of it's got logging roads in it, which actually works against the ungulates because these wolves can stay right on top of the snow. They got logging road, logging roads. They can cruise ridgelines. And they're very proficient. I do respect their ability to kill. Like, don't get it oh, yeah. twisted. Like, they're, I'm impressed. But I'm kind of over it. I've had so many wolf encounters where, like, it's, it's literally, I can't even, I'm over 30 wolves I've seen, like, up close and wow. personal. And, th- and it's, it's nothing to, it's, I'm not excited about that number. It's just the fact that, to me, they're just a dog. When I see them up close, it's just a dog that lifts its leg to piss and probably, yeah. you know, it just, it just goes around and can kill, you know, strength in numbers. You know, with the reintroduction or whatever, like, it, it sounded like, it sounded good on paper, but I just don't think people understood how incredible, and maybe they didn't take the time to think, why were they wiped out with poison not right. that long ago? And I don't think we're going to be able to manage them through trapping and hunting. I have a different view. When I, I'm seeing more and more on social media, people, like, are going out and getting them. Mm-hmm. To me, that doesn't mean, oh, cool, like we're starting to manage them. That just means there's so many that these guys are getting an opportunity because once these wolves wise up, you're not going to get them anymore, in my opinion. I just think they're they're yeah. that smart, and uh, they're going to figure out real quick not to come out of the timber. In our country, that's just a game changer unless you're going to trap and, and find kills, and, and that's expensive. And so fortunately, um, we have this new program coming out, and I'm trying to get this guy. His name's Justin Webb. He's terrible at communication, but he <laughs> is really smart, and he started this foundation, and it's really something I've seen you guys put on your social. Tell us about that, Justin Webb, since I haven't got him on the podcast yet, and what he's got going on. Oh, he's a great guy. I'm sure you'll get to him eventually. He's a busy man as well, but what they do is reimburse you for your fuel and your whatever whatever it takes for you to harvest a wolf. So you have to have a receipt and they reimburse you a certain amount of money per wolf. I don't even know the current rates because they've, they've changed a little bit. Um, so it's a, it's a foundation or an organization where, you know, you, you pay in to be a member every year and they put that money basically in a pot and the guys that are good at it are just anybody that's able to harvest a wolf and that you're a member, you get reimbursed a certain amount of money for that uh, wolf you harvest. And then you get to keep the wolf in the pelt. And so that's inspired some of these old time trappers um, to get out there and to trap because to begin with, when they open the trapping season, they, the, even the fish and game were telling these guys, we need you guys out there trapping. And these guys were saying, I'm not going to do it. There's, you know, I'd have to spend thousands of dollars in gear. You got to go check your sets every three days. Some people run, you know, 50 mile trap lines. You're doing that on a snowmobile. You're wearing out your rig, your snowmobile all that time and money, uh, when you get a couple hundred dollars for a wolf pelt, you're not even, you know, you're going backwards and not to say you're going to make money with this organization by any means, but it, it helps. And it helped, I would say with some of the wolf harvest, some of those people get out there, it gives you a little more motivation when you know you can get reimbursed for something like that. Yeah. I'm going to get him on here. He's like, he does, he lives out in the sticks. He doesn't have great 
cell phone or internet. So that's why it's been tough. But it's called Foundation for Wildlife Management. They have a website. They have a Facebook page, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Great program. I mean, if you're going to be in the woods, I'm 100% for those guys. If you're going to be in the woods, you better be a member because if you have a chance of of shooting a wolf, you know, you got a wolf tag in your pocket, even though you're not out hunting for them, accidents happen. You have a wolf come in. And the prime example is that my brother, Tom, I mean, I've always been a member of it, but one way or another, we didn't get Tom signed up here a couple of years ago. And he had a whole pack come in while he was archery hunting. And he ended up sticking three wolves with his bow, um, found two of them, did not find the third one, but then went to, we went in to see if he was a member and he forgot to re-sign up. So oh. <laughs> well, be signed up. It's, it's a good program. Even if anything, you're helping the guys that get out there. I mean, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a couple guys, like you said, it's hard to manage, but there's a couple guys that have it figured out that are trapping. You're not going to do it with, with hunting them that have helped in certain areas, but you have to take the majority, if not all of the pack out to help. And I've seen, um, I don't know if it's a rebound in reproduction or just the game moving back into the country, but I would say for the first time since they started declining, a few areas this year that we went into had better numbers than they have in the past few years. And we saw littler wolf sign, even though we, I personally had more wolf encounters this year than I've had um, in a couple areas that helped for sure. Well, we probably should, we'll probably talk about that a little bit. So, in in my general area that I hunt, um, I have a cabin, and there's it's a highway. My cabin's right off the highway, and it wasn't uncommon to see when we got at least a foot of snow, wolf tracks in the highway. I'm not right. kidding, and that, that's crazy to me because in that particular area, those locals will shoot out the side of their window. I mean, it's it's a little lawless there. I I have too much to to lose to lo- and I don't want to lose my hunting. Right. right. So I won't do anything illegal when it comes to wolves, but I will tell you that there's some really good elk hunters out there and we've all tried to kind of figure out how to mitigate mitigate hunting with uh, elk, so and wolves and and it's been tough. Last year, this last season was no no different than any other. I literally almost have to go to a particular drainage and be ready to bounce drainage after drainage due to if the wolves moved in. And I right. don't know how many packs I hunt like about a 20 mile as the crow flies area and there's several drainages in there, but I can stay on top of ridges and, and I literally, I can go from one area that had a rut fest the night before and get back there in the morning and that attention drew the wolves and the wolves are in there. They start howling. You see their tracks right there in the trails or fresh scat and if they, and it's crickets and then you, have, right. to, you have to like literally you just burned really prime elk hunting time. You got to get back on the horse, get on your dirt bike, get back on the trail and go to the next drainage and hope that, you know, cause that drainage is done. Those, those elk have figured out they got to shut up. And so it's just a lot of less vocalization and a lot more bouncing around. How have you guys had to evolve in your area? Yeah, the same thing. I mean, area, most areas where I used to go in, we'd have five or six bull up bugling. Well, now it's like, like you said, we'll jump drainages all day for maybe one, one bugle. And if you mess up on that, that elk, you don't, you might as well go to a different area altogether. So, I mean, we've, we've just gotten more into drawn for tags elsewhere. We've tried to get out um, locally of North Idaho because it has gotten so bad. I mean, we used to, we used to fill our tags every year here and, 
we know the country like the back of our hands. We grew up here. It's very, it's the hardest country. Every time I go somewhere else, it's easier to kill animals elsewhere than it is here. Very hard to kill animals in this brush and steep country. And we have a hard time filling our tags, no doubt. And like I said, we know the country. We know how the, the game moves. We've lived here our whole lives. And there's years where we can't fill our tags here and we got to go elsewhere. It's really sad. But so having said that, um, just going elsewhere to hunt, on the same token, we got to try and do our part. And I would say as an elk hunter, it's, it was always hard for me. If I, I've had times where I had bulls bugling and then I had wolves howling and I was always in the mode of elk hunting. So I would continue to hunt elk. You know what I mean? And I would let those wolves howl on that other side, but I've learned, I have to be an opportunist an opportunist like the wolves. The wolves are opportunists. If they are uh, sitting there, you know, doing whatever, minding their own business and a deer walks by, they're going to go chase it and they're going to kill it. Like that's just how they work, whether they're hungry or not. So I've got to be a little bit like a wolf. If I'm hunting elk and I get wolves howling nowadays, I quit what I'm doing. I don't care if I got a bull bee one, I go wolf hunting. It, it ruins my day and it pisses me off, but then my day turns into a wolf hunt. And so that's what we've, we've had to do. And we've been successful a couple of times on, on killing them where we wouldn't have, if we wouldn't have gone after them, obviously. That's really gold, what you said right there. And, and when, you, when you have a bow in your hand and you hear the wolf howling, are you guys just getting as close as you can and start howling back at them? Um, both worlds, I would say what's made it unfortunate is that now sometimes we pack a rifle. If we know we're going in a country, like you said, yep. where you're going you're gonna to run into wolves most likely, the cameraman throws a rifle on his back. I mean, it's bear season for one. And you might see a wolf. So that sucks. We got to pack another 10 pound rifle around everywhere we go, wherever we go, just in case we see one. But yeah, it is tougher with the bow. I mean, we've called them in before and shot them with a pistol too, but that's, that's a lot harder to do. <laughs> you know, they shoot at them. <laughs> but Tom, Tom had the one, yeah, the one experience where they just came in, they were close. He, he didn't know they were there. He was just cow calling. Whole pack was surrounding him. And one came running in on him, and he he shot the one at like ten yards or something like that, right in the chest, coming at him. You know, it never stopped. Wow! And so he stuck that one with his bow, and then when that one got stuck and went over and died, the other ones came out and were sniffing it. They didn't know what was going on. Is allowed him to knock, knock and shoot two more times, and he shot two more that way. Unbelievable! Yeah. Um, but the my two personal encounters this year was just the one I was purposefully hunting wolves. I, I had heard the pack howling before season early in the summer. And then, um, I had heard them again. I heard somebody went up to a high mountain lake and heard the pack howling up there again. So I went up intentionally the first week of elk season or sorry, wolf season in August here. And, uh, we got the pack howling and ended up getting in close and shooting a couple. So that was, that was a lot of fun, but I guess I should go in. Do you want me to go into detail with that? Because maybe somebody could learn from that experience. hundred percent. One thing that we have found out because it seems like every couple of years we get an opportunity or call them call one in just in my experience this year, in our opinion of calling a, a couple in, not like we're professionals or we know what we're doing just based off of what I've learned personally is sometimes if you howl them, you can get them howling with another wolf howl, but they're a little timid. It seems like it's, they don't know if that other pack is bigger or better than them. They don't know if they're going to get kicked out of their own territory by another pack. You know, it, it could be a fight. 
and they're, I think that they're a little concerned that they might lose. And so we've, we've had success getting them to howl with a wolf howl and we've had them in close, but they're always timid, like almost like a herd bull, bull elk is, you know, he's not sure what he's going to get himself into if he comes out. And so this time, given it was earlier in the year, we thought, okay, we're going to, we took a different approach. We said, we're going to get him howling with a wolf howl. And that's what we did. We, we, we howled until we located the pack and they answered us. And then we shut up and we got in, we were a couple miles away when we first howled them. And then we got in close to where we thought we were probably about 400 yards from where we thought the, the pack was. And we did a, and it was, it was a, a gap there in time, you know, maybe a half hour or something like that to the time we got there. And then we did a predator call. Cause in my mind, I'm thinking this whole pack, these hungry dogs aren't going to be able to resist a dying calf moose right now or a distressed calf moose. So we got in close and we did a calf moose call and I, I don't know if it would work again, but it, my jaw hit the floor when a, when a wolf ran out of the woods within 45 seconds of calling. I mean, that thing came on a dead run and uh, I shot that one running at like 80 yards and piled it up. And so then everything kind of got silent and Tom and I are sitting there high fiving. I mean, we shot a wolf. That's hard to do for sure. And I thought, well, let's see if we can get another one. And we went back and we kind of tracked where this wolf came out and had saw that more wolves had came out, uh, but they went behind us kind of on a ridge. So, I mean, they were coming out to circle us. That's, you know, that's what they do. They get behind you. Yep. And so we, we obviously knew there was more wolves. So we sat there, uh, we gave it a little time and nothing happened. Um, we gave a couple like pup yips and we were trying everything we could on the, on the recorder that we had. And then a wolf ended up giving us a yip over there and a little howl. And we thought, okay, they're still in the same spot. So I told Tom, I said, it's getting dark. I mean, we can sit here and twiddle our thumbs or we can go after him. And Tom's kind of looked at me like, what do you mean? Like, it's almost getting dark. You're going to climb over there in the alders with them. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the only way we're going to get them. I can see that for right now. They're not going to come back out in the open again. They just saw what happened to the first one. And so we got right over there in their territory. And I could tell that there was some young ones in there. You know, you can tell by the voice, like you can tell an alpha when it howls, it's really low and deep. And then you can, I could hear a couple of younger sounding wolves and yips going on. And so we got over there to, again, where I thought we were really close, like within a hundred yards. And we did a pup distress call and it was just silent. I mean, it was eerie, kind of like you were saying, it was just like, you don't, you don't hear a squirrel or anything. It's just completely silent. And all of a sudden a wolf just, he had to be watching us or um, circling us or something, but a wolf busts out of the brush at like 15, 20 yards. And then I look behind me and I see a tail of another one. I mean, these are happening so fast. um, You would need a shotgun just to be shooting in the brush to be able to get a shot off. Like you you don't even have time to pull your, your gun up and find something in your scope. And we were basically surrounded by the whole pack, but they did not like that pup distress call. I mean that we, we completely threw them for a loop with that. And I knew where we were at. We weren't going to get a shot because we were right in the alders with them. And I could see across a little Creek that it, I had a little bit more shooting lanes over there. So we snuck over there as quiet and as calm as we could. And when we got over there, we did it again. 
and I saw a flash of one running at like 80 yards. And I just pulled up and I shot as fast as I could as soon as I saw him in my scope and it disappeared. I didn't know if I got it or not. And uh, we walked up there and that one was laying there dead. So then we had, then we had two. We kept on up the hill and we basically chased them like you're chasing a, a herd of elk, you know, every once in a while. At that point, they were pretty flustered and they've obviously lost two and they're, they were making all kinds of growling and snarling and making all kinds of sounds. And we basically just were running them down as fast as we could doing that pup call, that pup distress call. And they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if another, yeah, we just had them confused. And then I uh, ended up getting a third opportunity shot on another one that came in and just kind of ran by us. And I remembered I was huffing and puffing and running up the hill. And I remembered when I shot that that one was a clean miss. I just shot right over its back when I had pulled the trigger, but, um, that was pretty, that was a crazy experience. And I, we were able, we were able to get the first one on camera, Yeah, but I did not charge the batteries since Adam and I got home from our, um, bear hunt. And it was one of those deals just after work, we decided to go up after these wolves. And so I had like, I turned the camera on when we left the pickup, I had like a minute and 30 seconds of video. (laughs) And fortunately we got the first one on video and then the camera batteries died and we did not get that second one Yeah, or the third shot on there. But for those of you that don't know, you can buy five wolf tags here in Idaho, hunting tags and five trapping tags. So, you know, it's not like we were doing anything illegal. No. Out there hunting the pack. You were saving some elk. That was for sure. Um, amongst other ungulates, man. Dude, I am so glad that uh, you took time out. I know you're working six days a week at least and uh, carve out some time for this. I want to give you guys one more plug. Check out your guys' YouTube channel, Stuck in the Rut. Where else can people find you on the Internet? We're just mainly YouTube right now. We're looking at other avenues, but it's not going to be anytime soon just due to time. So we're right now, if you want to see what we've got out there, it's, it's just YouTube, Stuck in the Rut. That's yeah, we're on, we're on Facebook and Instagram as well, yeah. Cool. But we've got about... I don't know what we're at. Like I said, I'm not bad with numbers as far as that goes, but we're over a hundred. We have over a hundred episodes on YouTube. So there's a lot of content on there. Go check them out. And then, um, as far as 2019 goes, what do you, what do you think you got planned for the upcoming season? Oh, I don't really know. As far as, um, like I was saying earlier, we're just trying to get out locally. We've just had to start putting in for tags all over. So we put in for basically all the adjoining States, I guess with the exception of Oregon and Washington are a real pain to put in for, but we put in for a lot of different tags, elk and deer and some tags in Alaska. And I don't really know what my season's going to bring until, until we see if we drew anything. Yeah, for sure. And then you you got any wolf hunting coming up here this winter? uh, With this? Yeah. I didn't really get into my, this winter's plan, but um, long story short, no, I'm not going to have any time. We, we sold our house. We lived in a fifth wheel trailer and why we're building again. And so it's been hectic with a new baby and, Oh. living in a fifth wheel and we just we just moved into an unfinished house that i gotta finish while i'm logging full-time time is short right now <laughs> when that's all done yeah i hope to get out well i i don't know you that well but i tell you what i do love about you is your work ethic and your hustle to me that is my love language hell i have a shirt that says that that i sell <laughs> awesome on. i mean hustle is my love language i respect <laughs> your hustle and what you and your brother represent what you guys are doing and I, I want to just that. expose people to what you guys got going on. I feel like you're extremely underrated for what you guys do and what you have out there. So everybody go check out their YouTube channel. I'll provide links and uh, 
as well to your social and uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. And we will definitely bring you on again because we didn't even get a chance to talk about elk hunting tactics. And that's a whole nother can of worms we'll save for another time. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate that. And there's one more thing I want to say that I was thinking about here. It's not just me and my brother, Tom. I want people to know out there that it is a family effort. And, you know, I've, I've got, um, there's four siblings, me and two brothers and my sister, and then all of our spouses. And then my mom and dad, it's, it's a family venture. We all do it together. We all help out. It's just that Tom and I mainly do the editing. And so, um, it, that's what's I think sets us apart. And what's really neat is we all work together and, and work hard at it. That's awesome. Trav, uh, enjoyed having you. And uh, yeah. maybe one day we'll share a campfire. Keep hustling, man. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you. Take care.